Alright. I think we're going well here. Alright, now we'll get going. Thank you guys. I'm glad you guys are here. Have a chance to, to walk through this with you and to spend this summer with you guys a little bit. Um, let me just briefly explain what we're doing before we jump into it. So for this summer, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of John together, um, which means we're going to be moving. Uh, roughly, roughly two to three chapters a week is how much we're going to be talking. So we're going to be um, we're going to be going really quickly. The format on this is going to look a little bit different every week, probably, uh, as far as the order or flow of we, that we do things and maybe some different, uh, some different aspects of how you study the Bible we might kind of bring to the table. But basically, there will be two things every week that we'll be doing. One is um, myself or Ryan Vincent or Scott Irwin also, Kelsey Spear, actually, I think we've talked her into. Um, it will be teaching a little bit through the gospel. And then the second part that's going to be taking place is this video uh, from a professor, actually a retired professor now at Ozark Christian College, uh, by the name of Kenny Bowles. And uh, Ozark has started offering these things online. You can watch at home yourself. You can, you can go through all these. They've kind of started doing some of their courses in like a really, really miniature, like bite-sized form, like 15-minute lectures through the Gospel of John or through how to study the Bible or apologetics. If you did the uh, Monday night uh, the yeah, theology this last semester, then you did the apologetics course with Chad Ragsdale going through that. So anyway, this... This guy, like I said, just retired, Kenny Bowles, but he had been at Ozark for a long, long time. He was actually my dad's professor when my dad was there, and then my professor, and uh, claims that we were both consistently late to class. That's how he could keep, uh, keep track of our relationship, is that we were always both late. But, um, so anyway, great teacher, and he's been teaching through the Gospel of John for much of his, much of his career, and so... I'm excited to let you guys kind of introduce you to him and let you get to know him a little bit as we, uh, as we walk through some of this stuff together. Um, you probably know this already, but we teach this same class Sunday mornings at 9.30. So if there's ever a week that you're going, man, we're not going to be there Wednesday, but we'd like to check it. One, we're trying to record it so that we can, we can place those up and you can keep track of it. Or you can, you can come uh, the Sunday before at, at the church and, and we teach through this same exact class. We just did John 1 on Sunday with our group and, and you can come check those things out. Here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to walk through all of John this, this morning, all of John 1, sorry, all of John 1 this, uh, this evening, but we, we don't have time to actually dive in deep to all of John 1. So what, what you have before you is the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, and we're going to start tonight by just unpacking that a little bit. Um, some believe, you'll, you'll kind of see as you read through that, that there is a somewhat kind of hymn-like nature to it, um, poetic in, in some of the way it is written. And, and some people believe that it may have been like an early church hymn that, that John kind of put on the front of his gospel. We don't know this for sure, but we do know that it is a, a section that is just kind of stacked full of statements about Jesus. John just piles them one on top of uh, another in these first 18 verses and actually the whole first chapter. Well, what you'll kind of see is, is that the 
first chapter of the Gospel of John is, is a little bit like a table of contents in all the names that start getting ascribed to Jesus, the titles or the actions that he does that are described to him. You're going to see those, the, the words that come up and the phrases that come up describing Jesus, you're going to see those ripple out into the rest of the Gospel as we look through those things. And so we're going to start, like I said, with these first 18 verses observing the text. Before you do that, go ahead and grab that observational tips sheet. When we have known the Bible for a long time, when we, for those of us who have sat with the Bible, who've grown up in church reading the Bible, it can get really easy uh, to... uh, to only be able to let it hit us on a surface level, because we already know what this is about to say. If, uh, if you've been in Bible very long, you know we're about to hit, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He was with God in the beginning, and those words will just start to come to you even before you get to them on the page. Uh, and observation, taking the time to observe the text, is a practice that forces us to make sure we stop and look at it with fresh eyes. And look for things that we haven't seen before. And so you have this sheet here. I would encourage you just to fold this up and keep this in your Bible. When you want to study, this is a great, uh, great, I didn't come up with all of these. I don't know, I can't remember how much I came with, if, came up with, if any of it. But um, these are some great little things to be looking for when you're reading through a passage. So we're not going to go through all of them. I want to I wanna show you four or five of my favorites. And then we're going to practice this on on John 1. Uh, The first one is this, always be aware of the context of your passage. Uh, That is is simple, and if you've been around Sunnybrook for very long, or if you've been at the table very long, you've heard us say it. Context is king. And if you want to be able to understand Scripture, you read the context. Um, The vast majority of interpretive errors when reading the Scriptures can be resolved simply by reading the paragraph before and the paragraph after your verse. Most of the mistakes that get made in studying the Bible are simply a result of not reading the paragraph before and the paragraph after and asking, how does this verse fit into that little section that I just read? How does it fit in the flow of the argument of that section right there? And so reading, being aware of the context and reading through those is huge whenever we look at Scripture. The second is look for repetition of words. When you look for those, obviously that gives you a hint at to the greater theme that's, that's being played out in this text. And you're going to see a lot of that in John 1 tonight. You're going to see a repetition of words. Jump down to number 5. Look for words, ideas, and even individuals that show contrast. Contrast. So when the writer is holding up two pictures or two ideas or two people and contrasting them in some way, that lets you, that gives you kind of a, a big idea into the theme that he's getting at. That helps you understand the context of the passage that you're reading. You can see those ideas similar to that is comparison. Look for words, ideas, and individuals that show comparison. This helps you see uh, an illustration of how a word, idea, or individual provides an example of the lesson being taught. Jump two more down. This might be my favorite. And when I'm studying the Bible, I look for these as much as anything else, the use of cause and effect. So that is, I look for phrases like, in order that. And I draw, every time I'm right, I draw a box around in order that. And I draw two lines connecting um, from the sentence that's flowing into that, that little phrase and the sentence that's flowing out. And watching how these two ideas connect, 
this idea happens in order that this will take place. Or this word, so that, that things. Or for this reason. For this reason or uh, therefore. Those kinds of ideas that are showing a connection, a cause and effect, um, demonstrate for us things like this. What Paul believes you should be praying if you want to live this kind of life. Pray this in order that this will happen. Or what Paul believes will happen if you believe these things, what it's going to lead to in your life. Um, what, if you want this to be a part of who you are, then Paul or John or Matthew might say, then do these things. And, and it's that in order that phrase, it's that so that, um, that really does help us to see these connections as they come up in Scripture. Um, Lastly, actually, we'll just, we'll just stop there for tonight. Here's, here's what I'm going to have you do in John 1 tonight. I'm going to give you about seven or eight minutes to read by yourself. I want you to look for three specific things as we do it. I want you to look for repeated words or phrases. You can do whatever you want. I usually, when I see repeated words or phrases, I circle those and I draw lines connecting them to each other. The second thing I want you to look for is comparison contrast statements. And the third thing I want you to look for is um, descriptions of Jesus' identity, whether that be a title that he is given, whether that be something that is said about his nature, or something that is described about his actions, verbs describing what Jesus did or is doing or will do. Um, and, and as I said, you're going to find a ton of those in this because John is, like I said, poetically just throwing them one right on another almost to overwhelm you uh, with this big picture of who Jesus is. So let me pray for us before we dig in and then I'm going to give you a little bit of time to, to take a look at that and then we'll talk. Dear Father in heaven, as we come to open up your word tonight and for the rest of this summer, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would reveal yourself to us through your son Jesus. Help us to see you more clearly. Give us a, a greater love for you through your word. May your spirit do a work that makes us more obedient as we feed on the gospel. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, take, take seven minutes and uh, read through John 1, taking note of the things that stick out to you in there. All right. Let's talk for just a little bit um, about things that stuck out of you. Let's actually I'll start with that first question. Repetition of words. What words come up over and over and over again in these first 18 verses? The word. The word. Okay. Witness. Light. Light. Witness. Okay. So it's just re real quick, let me just pause and say something. There's some people who think that the entire Gospel of John is built around this idea of Jesus on trial. And, a wit and witnesses to who Jesus is being presented over and over and over again. Uh, with the whole idea being, um, 
whatever you determine your verdict to be about Jesus, innocent or guilty, the irony is that John flips that on you at the end and says whatever you say about Jesus gets put on you. Innocent, good, right, then you are innocent in Jesus. Guilty, then you will be found that way. And so this idea of witness will come up over and over again. I heard the word light, uh, which is a, uh, a big one in the Gospel of John. Jesus will take this uh, this particular festival, it might be John 7, we'll, we'll take this particular festival in which water and light are used together and he'll stand up and he'll start talking about being light and he'll use those word pictures um, to describe himself a little bit later. What else comes up in this gospel or in these 18 verses? Creator, Creator. all right. Grace. Grace comes up. Grace and truth comes up. Other repetition, other words you see? God a lot. Okay, um, let me switch you to, and there's not as many of these, but a little bit of uh, comparison or contrast. Where do you see those in here? Okay, light and darkness. So that word light comes up a bunch, and then darkness comes up. And this is another thing you'll see in the Gospel, uh, not just the Gospel of John, John's writings in general, be the Gospel or his three epistles, is John is a man who does not leave a lot of room for gray. Uh, John is really big on, and he kind of gets it from Jesus, who talks like this a lot, that you are either in the light or you are in the darkness. It's not like a middle. Um, and, and, and he'll use that kind of language a fair amount, but he goes into it in, in the Gospels a lot, but there's not this in-between. So he'll, he'll say things like, you can't say, this is in the epistles, you can't say, I love God but not love my brother. A person either loves God and his brother, or he, if he hates his brother, it means he hates God. And he doesn't really leave like a little gray. Hey, you can sort of kind of... He just kind of says it like it is, and so light and darkness are one of those major contrasts. Um, what else do you see there? Okay, yeah, there's uh, sort of a comparison contrast in there, and that is a good thing to even note. We'll see another one like this. Contrast doesn't always mean good and bad. It just means, let me give you the, t- the differences between these two. He himself, John, was not the light. He was a witness to the light. So Jesus is, John points to. Law and grace. Okay, law and grace. And, and then the two, the two people that those come through? Okay, Moses, Jesus. So the law came from Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. I always like to pause and point out there. John is not saying uh, Jesus is really gracious and honest. Uh, he is saying that grace and truth themselves proceed from Jesus. Grace itself comes from Him. Truth comes from Him. The truth we know is His truth. And the grace that comes from God is given to us through Jesus Himself. Anything else? Uh, worldly versus heavenly? Worldly versus heavenly? Where, where's that? Yeah, yeah, but the world didn't know him, so he was—he comes down and comes into the world. But the world doesn't see him. That's good. Um, also, by the way, a huge—that uh, word. I remember I had to do a word study on the word cosmos in the Gospel of John uh, for my principles of interp, and 
that was like the word cosmos comes up something like five gajillion times in the Gospel of John. And so I spent a lot of time, and I remember you had to, to print stuff out, cost you a nickel or whatever. I spent a lot of nickels on printing out every reference to the word world. What's kind of interesting is John points the world just like this. John paints the, uh, the world as not some neutral thing that, that is trying to figure out between good and bad. But when John uses the word world, he's usually talking about like, um, humanity arrayed in rebellion against God. He's usually talking about something negative, the, the, the creation that God made that is against him. Now think about that in light of the most famous verse in Scripture. For God so loved humanity arrayed against him in rebellion that he gave his only son. So think about when you see the word world in, in the Gospel of John, note that that's usually not just kind of a earth that he's talking about. He's talking about sinful humanity. He's talking about um, what, what goes against um, heaven, what goes against God. All right, so next, uh, next one, and this is the bigger one. What, what kind of things are said about Jesus in this, in this little snippet? Okay, he is God right out of the gate. John wants to be really clear about that. He was with God and was God. What else? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What else is said about Jesus in here? He's the light for all men. Okay, he's the light for all men. Creator, all things were made through Him. We're going to tackle that in just a little bit because that's a big verse right there. Okay, right there at 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Um, this is a this this little idea is going to come up here in in John 14, around kind of the table there at the. Uh, Jesus' last little night hanging out with his disciples and he's talking to them and he's trying to uh, speak some final words of truth. And one of his disciples, I forgot to double check this from Sunday, but I'm pretty sure it's Philip. Uh, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Show us the Father and we'll be able to believe. And you remember what Jesus says to him? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We did this podcast just a little while ago with uh, Mark Scott, another professor from Ozark, who teaches the Gospels. He teaches particularly Matthew and Mark. And we were just asking him about the Gospels and asking him about Matthew and why. You know, why do you love it so much? And, and Mark was saying that he really does believe the Gospels to be the pinnacle of Scripture, that they are the high point of the Bible, which I honestly can say was, was not my mindset, not the way I looked at it. I'm, I'm a bit of a Paul guy. I like reading through the apostles or through the epistles and seeing just kind of doctrine and theology thrown at us through, uh, through that lens. But, but he says the Gospels are, and the more I've thought about it, the more I think that's true. Uh, every bit of the Old Testament is pointing us to the Gospels. And the epistles are meant to give us a deeper explanation of what was revealed in the Gospels. And the reason why is because you and I were created to know God. 
And what John is going to make clear for us is the only way to know God is to know Jesus. And so if you want a deeper relationship with Him, if you want to know God better, Jesus says, get to know me. And, and that's one of the cool things about us getting to study the Gospel of John is we're going to get a chance to see Jesus more clearly and hopefully in the process get to know His Father more clearly as well. Anything else that you notice said about Jesus? Yeah, I love that. He gave the rights to become children of God. By the way, that comes right after another contrast in verse 11. Um, came to His own but his own did not receive him. But there are some who did, and those who did, he gave the right to become children of God. Um, anything else you notice there? Uh, I, I like five. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That kind of idea. I also love another one of my favorites is 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of uh, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another big idea that we're going to, we'll tackle in a little bit. But I want to let Kenny talk a little bit about that before we jump into it. I'm going to hit that and we'll, I'm going to turn off these front lights close to it real quick. Yeah. Our first lesson in the Gospel of John is going to be called Identity. What is the identity of the author of this book? And what is the identity of this book as one of the four Gospels? What's the identity of this strange man who comes baptizing in the Judean wilderness? And most of all, what is the identity of this Jesus who is the Son of God? We'll start with the author of the book. Of course, we will understand that the author is the man named John, but how do we get to that conclusion? Often it is done this way. Looking at the internal evidence in the Gospel of John, you know that the author is, first of all, a Jew. He understands Jewish words, understands Jewish customs. We know that the man is not just a Jew from anywhere in the ancient world, but he is a Palestinian Jew. He knows the local territory. He speaks as one who grew up in the area. In addition to being all of that, he is also an eyewitness. He was there. He saw things happen. Not just any Jew, not just any Palestinian. He is an eyewitness. And then most of all, he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, as you go through the Gospel of John, you find out that the author refers to himself that way several times, but never names himself. Other gospel, or other Disciples are named, such as uh, Peter is named, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew. In fact, when you start listing all of them, you find only a couple of obscure ones, like uh, James the Less, not named. But one of the inner three, Peter, 
James, John. One of those three is never named. The one who was at the Transfiguration, the one who was closer in Gethsemane. So, by the process of elimination, this disciple that Jesus loved was John. The early church also agreed on that, and the uh, early church fathers unanimously pointed to John as the author of this book. So that's not a problem. What about the identity of this gospel? There are four gospels, of course. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are quite similar. They look together at the life of Jesus, and so they are called synoptics, the synoptic gospels. But John is different. John was written later. 91% of the gospel of John is not included in the other gospels. And so John writes as someone who comes later and is going to provide additional information, not bothering to include so much of Jesus' life that has already been written. For instance, the birth is excluded. The temptations of Jesus excluded. Most of the miracles. The transfiguration, not there. The Last Supper. Most of the parables, in fact, all of those that are called parables are not in the Gospel of John. The Sermon on the Mount makes no appearance in the Gospel of John. Surprising, as we look at the identity of this Gospel, what the omissions are. What does John include? Well, here's what is special and unique in the Gospel of John. The signs. This is a Gospel of signs. The I Am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep, the good shepherd, so on. John makes a special point to stress the deity of Jesus and the humanity. Interesting that more than any of the other Gospels, we see Jesus as a man who gets tired, who sweats, who spits, who cries, who bleeds, who dies. And yet, more than the other Gospels by far, we see Jesus as God in the flesh. The deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus are contrasted in the Gospel of John. It's a marvelous thing. If there's one key word in the Gospel of John, it is the word believe. Never the noun faith, always the verb believe, that whosoever believes might have everlasting life. So, with that as a background for the Gospel of John and who wrote it and what's in it, let's start with John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's such an incredible thing. The Word for word, that is the Greek word that is translated as word in the English language, is logos. Now the logos had two primary uh, meanings or significations for those who read it in the first century. First of all, the Greek background of this word logos was something like almost mother nature or the reason of the universe or the, the purpose and the thing that holds everything together, that keeps the universe clicking, all of that was called logos. So the man on the street 
who spoke Greek would understand by the word logos, not just word, but would understand something more like logic that comes from logos and purpose and study and mind and all of what is included in what seems to keep the universe running. The second thing about the word logos, word, is from the Old Testament, what a Jewish person would understand, that the word of the Lord came to Isaiah or to Jeremiah or someone. And so it is both this mind of the universe and it is also the message of God that is wrapped up in this logos thing. The logos was with God, face to face with God, right up in intimate connection with God. And the Logos was God. And so we have a supreme mystery here, how God can be the Father and God can be the Son. There's still just one God, and yet God has manifested Himself as Father and Son, two separate personalities, and then later in the Gospel of John, we will encounter the Holy Spirit. So, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word was Logos. John 14, that is John 1:14, says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that is such a unique thing that the Word, the Logos, could become flesh, could become man, all that holds the universe together, all the message of God in one man, in human form. He is the Logos. And when John says that the Word dwelt among us, or lived among us, he goes back to the Old Testament and picks up the Word from the tabernacle, uh, the tent in the wilderness where God lived among His people in the camp as they were leaving Egypt through the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. This word for tabernacle, where the presence of God is found in the Holy of Holies, is the word that John imports here to say that the word, the Logos, tabernacled, made His dwelling in the midst of us. Verse 19, or verse 18, also has an important a statement when it says that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared us. And so this Logos, this Jesus, this one who became flesh, is called the one and only God. The new NIV makes an interesting translation on that when it uh, paraphrases a little bit, but tries to bring out the full truth when it says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in close, closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. And then we go to the Judean countryside and we begin to see a wild man. John the Baptist is out there baptizing and now we have identity come up again. John the Baptist is baptizing, and the leaders come out to ask him, Who are you? Are you the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, long awaited by the Jewish people? John says, No. Are you Elijah? 
No. Why would they say that? Well, the last chapter of the Old Testament in the last couple of verses says that before God sends his Messiah, Elijah will come and he will prepare the way. And so they're expecting, if not the Messiah, then Elijah to prepare for the Messiah. But John is not Elijah, at least not as far as he knows. Are you the prophet, the one that Moses promised in uh, Deuteronomy 18.15? Are you that man? No. Well, then who are you? He's just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is the one who has come to prepare for someone who is greater John baptizes with water, but this man, when he comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, with fire. And so then we have, finally, Jesus himself comes walking along the Jordan River. John interrupts his baptizing or preaching, whatever he's doing with the people at that point. And as he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so we are introduced to Jesus. A couple of the disciples are there. Disciples of John the Baptist now become disciples of Jesus. They follow him. Rabbi, where are you staying? You might notice as you study the text, and I hope you have your Bibles open in front of you as we go through this in each lesson. But they want to know, where, Rabbi, where are you staying? And John the gospel writer feels it necessary to explain to his Gentile readers that a rabbi is a teacher. So having that done, they go with Jesus and they see where he's staying. And uh, one by one, Jesus begins to accumulate his disciples. He picks up uh, Peter and Andrew. Andrew says to Peter, we've, we've found him, we've found the Messiah. John explains the Messiah is a Christ, the Anointed One. He picks up Nathanael, who is sitting under a fig tree. He is an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile, no pretense at all. He is just a simple, honest man. But most significantly, through the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we find Jesus identified the following ways. I want you to listen to this list. I'll give you the verse numbers. You can go back over them in your Bible as you like. In verse 1, Jesus is called God. In verse 2, He is called the Maker of the universe. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In verse 9, He is the true light that comes into the, into the world and enlightens every man. In verse 14, He is the Word that became flesh. He is the Son of God. In verse 18, He is called unique God, or God the one and only. In verse 29, He is called the Lamb of God, like the Lamb of the Passover, the Lamb of Isaiah 53 that is led to the slaughter, the Lamb that took the place of uh, uh, of. Uh, the son of Abraham, when he is to be slaughtered. Verse 34, he is the chosen one. Verse 38, he is rabbi. Verse 41, he is the Messiah. We have found him. Verse 45, he is the one that Moses wrote about. And then Nathaniel, bless his heart, 
when he understands who Jesus is and is so impressed by this man who can know secrets of his own life, he says, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then finally at the end of chapter 1, we have Jesus referring to himself with his favorite self-designation when he says, the Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man ascending and descending. Uh, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so this is Jesus. And this is the identity of the one that John the Gospel writer wants to present to us. He is the one who was in the beginning. He is the one who will be the uh, highlight and center focus of all of this book. He is the one who will die on a cross. He is the one who is the Son of God. All right. Can you get that switch, Eric, for me? Um, two things I'll let you know real quick before we get started. One is for the benefit of anybody who's listening to the recording and not able to come to the things, but also helpful for you. You can, you can watch these videos along with the other ones. The, the website is occ.edu slash series. And they've got, they've got them on, uh, like I said, uh, Principles of Interp, they've got them on John, they've got them on the Book of Revelation, they've got them on Apologetics, there's one on Romans coming out soon. And so, occ.edu slash series. The second thing is I'm going to tell you the trick for how he writes on the glass there up there, because I know that if you're like me, you will not be able to pay attention to anything he's saying, because you'll just be going, how does he do that the whole time? Um, what they actually did, so they stood him in front of, they got a play, uh, plane of glass in front of him, and they let him write just as though he's facing it, and then they mirror the screen for him. So he's actually, it looks like he's writing with his left hand, he's actually writing with his right hand. They just mirrored, and it looks like he's writing it this way for us, he's actually writing it that way for himself. And then they flip it around. And so um, you'll notice if you watch any of those, um, they tried to tell them, my friend is uh, a professor there, and he was saying that they tried to tell them, switch your wedding ring, uh, to your other hand, you know what I mean, whenever you do it, so that it looks like it's on the other hand, but like they, so they either, like my friend said, of course, usually your right hand's bigger or whatever, and so in the middle of like taping, his right finger started swelling up or whatever in the middle of it, so, uh, so his, and, and I think I noticed with Kenny, they just don't even have a wedding ring on, because it just gets interesting there, so now you know, and now you don't have to spend the entire video going, how are they doing, because um, I know that would be me, um, Here's what I want to do for our last little section is I want to, there's no way for us to be able to tackle in depth all the different titles that are given to Jesus in John 1 that Kenny just described for you. So I just want to take kind of two uh, from the first few verses of John and from the very last verse of John and talk a little bit about those for you. The first one is this idea that Jesus is creator God. He's a creator God and, and we're going to get a little bit apologetics-y here on, on this first one. Uh, there is, for the first thousand years of the church, most of the debates that took place within the church over right doctrine and what is good and what is true and what is heresy, uh, most of those major controversies centered around the nature of Christ. 
who he is, what he is, how much he is of what, right? And uh, the orthodox position for us is the belief that God, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, um, held together, and that he is of the same essence of God, that he and the Father are one. Uh, one of the first major heresies, so kind of the biggest one I can think of, that, or the earliest one I can think of, is what we call Gnosticism. Uh, and, and, and that was even kind of early forms of that were taking place, even it looks like as the New Testament was being written. But one of the first major ones where the church came together to decide, all right, what do we believe about this? And what are we going to talk about? What are we going to decide on this? was the Council of Nicaea in 325, and it was in response to Arianism. And uh, Arianism is, uh, was brought forth by this, this presbyter, this elder, this church leader by the name of Arius. And his two claims to fame are, one, this heresy. And second, he's the only person we know of that was ever punched in the face by Santa Claus. And that is a true story, actually, that at the Council of Nicaea, uh, St. Nicholas was actually at that council, and the story is that St. Nicholas got so agitated at Arius by the things that he was saying about Jesus that he actually came across the table and laid hands on him. So, um, the only person that Santa ever punched in the face. Uh, I actually got to share on Sunday, I was telling the group on Sunday, like pro- maybe my favorite meme on the internet is this old painting of St. Nicholas, and the words on there say, uh, at the bottom say, I came to hand out presents presents and punch heretics. And, and then it says at the bottom, and I'm all out of presents. Uh, I love that. But that's, uh, that's one of Arius's claim to fame. The other one is this heresy, and, he, and that is this. Uh, Arianism is a fourth century heresy that asserts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we're good on that, who was begotten by God the Father at a point in time. In other words, there was a time when Jesus did not exist, but then God brought him into existence. And therefore, he is distinct from the Father and is therefore also subordinate to the Father. And by that we mean of a lesser essence, that his essence, that his substance is lesser than God's. Now, we actually believe that Jesus is functionally subordinate to the Father. That is, the role he chooses is a role that submits to the Father's will and obeys him. He'll say that over and over again himself. And so we believe that functionally he chooses to be subordinate. But ontologically, that is, in his essence, in his being, he is the same as. Arianism says, no, he's not, he's less than. He's similar than, but he's less than because God actually created him. And this was the big thing that the Council of Nicaea came together to try and determine um, issues of the Trinity and what is Jesus and who is he. And of course, at that time, like I said, they came away with saying, no, he is not similar to God. He is the same. He is of the same essence of, as the Father. And, and they are, even though they are two different persons, they are the same God along with the Holy Spirit. Now, the church in all strands, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, has held to that ever since that time, um, basically universally, except for a few small groups here and there. And that is carried on today by a handful of people, um, notably the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. And Jehovah's Witnesses, now, I don't know if either of them would call themselves Arians, uh, but Jehovah's Witnesses believe basically that, that, that God created Jesus at a particular point in time. And therefore, they are two different people. The Holy Spirit actually is not a third person, but it's just kind of the Spirit of God. 
um, in the same sense that like you have a spirit and I have a spirit, God's kind of spirit. So not a third person, just kind of an aspect of God, and Jesus is distinct from him. Mormons believe, uh, they call God Heavenly Father, and they believe that Heavenly Father had a sexual relationship with Heavenly Mother and conceived and gave birth to spirit children, the first of which was Jesus. And they believe that Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother also gave birth to the Holy Spirit and also gave birth to the devil and also gave birth to everyone else. Um, And so all of us are from God in that way. Now, they would say Jesus is, as the first, that He is more important, that He is greater, that He is better than all the rest of us. Um, But they would still say that He was the firstborn of creation, or yeah, the firstborn. And, by the way, they do have, that's not just out of nowhere, they have verses like, out of Colossians 1, where Jesus is described as the firstborn of creation. They'll ask the question, what do you do when it says Son of God? How do you read Son of God without thinking that He's the, the actual Son conceived by Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother? Uh, they'll, they'll look to places like the prayer of uh, Gethsemane, where Jesus is there and He seems to be wrestling between His will and the Father's will. And trying to submit his will to the fathers. Well, if they're the same person, why don't they have the same? And they'll ask those questions. And they're worth looking into, uh, worth uh, thinking through. But I believe that the first three verses, there are a number of verses that present some problems. But the first three verses of Gospel of John present the greatest hurdle for anyone who would try to say that Jesus is unique and distinct from the Father. Um, let me, let's read those together here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now that first verse in and of itself is a pretty big issue, a pretty big obstacle. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. How do, you, how do you try to say that Jesus is not God when John says here he is God? Uh, the answer that they will give you is that in the Greek, uh, when it says the Word was with God and the Word was God, that before that, uh, that, that last God right there was God, there is no definite article in the Greek. And so they will tell you that it should be translated, the Word was with God and the Word was a God, a lowercase g, God, a a lesser God, still God, still divine, just not the same God, not that God. Now, the problem with that interpretation is that they're trying to fit English grammar rules on Greek, and Greek doesn't work that way. And so just because something doesn't have a definite article there does not mean that you don't see it as the or as kind of the ultimate. That's just not how those things work. But even if we're to concede that to them and just say, okay, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll let you have that for a little bit. Verse 3, I think, becomes an even greater issue for them. And by the way, I'll, I'll just say, um, I'm going to read to you from the New World Translation, which is the specific translation that Jehovah's Witnesses use. And in the Jehovah's Witness, in the New World Translation, they literally translate it. The Word was with God, and the Word was a God. But when they get to verse 3, their verse 3 sounds almost identical to our verse 3. So let me read New World Translation verse 3. All things came into existence through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into existence. 
So their verse 3 sounds a whole lot like ours. And, and that's where I think their problem comes in, specifically Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I think, I've been trying to work through in my head whether this works with Mormons, whether I would um, walk this with Mormons. I, I've spent a lot of time actually talking to Mormons, missionaries that have come by our house and, and meeting with them both at our house or at different areas or meeting actually at their kind of missions hub here in town. I've even um, been, to, been to their church here in town and talked to kind of the head of their uh, church a couple times. And, and so I spent a lot of time talking with them, but I haven't actually got to bring this up fully with them. So I don't know exactly. Uh, but Jehovah's Witnesses, actually, this, this is a verse that I think really undoes a lot of their theology. And literally, the day I was studying this and getting ready for this, my wife texted me and said some Jehovah's Witnesses had just stopped by our house. And I was like, dang it, man, I, was, I just geared myself up for this, and, and I missed them. Uh, so I didn't get a chance yet to, to be able to run this by, but, but hopefully I'll get to at some point to, to kind of see what they think of this and to be able to bring this through them. This is not my own. This is a guy by the name of Greg, I'm going to say Kukul, K-O-U-K-L, who kind of draws this up. Um, basically, he says, this is the way you could share the gospel with the Jehovah's Witnesses on the back of a napkin. All right. So, out of John 1-3, I'm going to draw this little thing here. Uh, we draw a box, and this, in this box, it represents everything that exists. Not just that, but everything that has ever existed and everything that ever will exist, all of it falls in this box. Now, out of this box, of, the, of, of all the things that exist, we, we found ourselves broken into two categories. Um, the first is everything that has not uh, come into being or come into existence. Okay, and what I mean by that is this box here on the left represents everything that always was. There was never a time when it did not exist and therefore it didn't come into existence. It simply always was. Right? And on the right side we have everything that has come into existence. That is, there was a time in which these things did not exist. So the question, as we look at these, and, and the question that, that I would ask a Jehovah's Witness if I was able to sit down and write this out um, on a piece of paper is, what falls into this left box? And, and what's the answer? What goes in the left box? Okay. God. And this is something that they would say and they would agree with. Here's where it gets a little weird with Mormons, is Mormons technically wouldn't even put God there. Mormons technically believe Heavenly Father, the God that we read about the Bible, was at one point a created man himself who then rose through the ranks of heaven and spirituality until he himself became divine and became his own. So that's where it gets a little weird is they, they technically wouldn't even put them in this, but I think I could force them into say, let's talk this universe. 
let's talk about what we know, what things have always existed in, t- in this universe. And I think there they would probably fall in that and say, God, but this is what we would say as well. So the next question then is this, what falls into this right box? Okay, I'll just say, we'll say that right there. Creation or all created things. Everything that has been ever created fits in this. It's two categories, creator and um, created. Um, according to John 1.3, let me read it again. We'll read it several more times. But all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. According to John 1.3, all this... is created through Jesus. Okay? Even even in the Jehovah's Witnesses translation, they would say, there is nothing inside this box, according to John 1.3, that was not created by Jesus. So then the final question is, which box does Jesus go in? And, and their theology dictates that they would have to say here. But John 1.3 dictates that he cannot possibly fit there because everything inside this box was created by Jesus. And if we put Jesus in there, then we're forced to conclude that Jesus was created through Jesus, which doesn't make sense and, and doesn't fit in any way um, logic because, like I said, and it, and it is it's important to stress that there is no third category here. Uh, the, the law of the excluded middle tells us that of these things, everything fits in it. And there's not a sort of created but sort of not created category. You're either creator or you're created. And on this side, all of these things are created by Jesus. Therefore, Jesus himself cannot be in this category. He must be over here. Now, here are the two objections that Jehovah's Witness would give to this box whenever he would see this drawn up. First thing they would say is you're misunderstanding that word uh, or you're, you're, you're forgetting that phrase apart from him. Let me read again the New World Translation. Their translation of it says, All things came into existence through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. So what they would say is apart from him means that everything was created through Jesus with the exception of Jesus himself, who was first created by Jesus, or who was first created by God. So, apart from Jesus, everything was made by Jesus. But he himself, he was made by God. Now, what that means, though, is that you are, you, what you're trying to say is everything excluding Jesus was created by him, right? So, it's like saying, um, my family, apart from me, went to Disney World, right? Everybody in my family went to Disney World except for me, excluding me. The problem is, though, when you try to substitute that phrase, excluding Jesus, for apart from him, the sentence doesn't make any sense anymore. Take a look at it. All things came into existence through him, and excluding Jesus, not even one thing came into existence. That's nonsensical. Actually, what that means is nothing in the whole world exists except for Jesus. Um, that can't be what John is saying. It's not what he means by apart from him. What he means is the way the ESV translates it, which is without him. 
When he says apart from him, he means apart from his agency. Apart from me, my family cannot go to Disney World. I have the car. Right? That's, that's the kind of apart from that John is writing here. He can't be saying excluding because the sentence doesn't make any sense anymore after that. The second objection would be to run back to that word beginning. And the truth is actually in the beginning uh, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Actually beginning also doesn't have the definite article in the Greek. And so they would say, ah, see what it actually means is in a beginning at some certain point in time. Now, I would tell you, and this is actually, I have talked with Mormons through this, and that's what they say. No, no, it means like in a beginning, because there was another beginning earlier than that. Uh, Again, they're trying to put English grammar rules on Greek, and it doesn't work, but you still actually have to deal with verse 3, because verse 3, no matter what beginning you're talking about, says that everything that has ever existed or come into existence, whether it was in this beginning or this beginning or this beginning or this beginning, anything that has ever existed exists through Jesus, came through Him. And so you still can't get around verse 3, no matter how you want to argue about that first statement there. So this passage, John 1, verses 1 through 3, is huge, not just for debating Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, but it is foundational for a lot of our understanding of who Jesus is. This is one of the major ones that causes things like the Council of Nicaea to say, no, 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 we cannot step away from this truth that He's fully God. It's laid out for us in Scripture as so. Um, Now that we've talked about this one at the beginning, let me take you to the very last verse of the book of John. This last title that is given to Jesus, it's actually a title that He uses about Himself here in John, which is fitting because it is Jesus' favorite title to describe himself. He says, actually I should add it there. Somebody, uh, somebody reads 51, right? The last verse there. Somebody read John 1, 51 for me. There we go. The Son of Man. As I said, by far, Jesus' favorite title. He will use it 13 times in the Gospel of John, and it will be used 69 times in the Synoptics. Almost every time it is Jesus referring to Himself in this way. I think there is one other instance, one instance of this phrase being used that's not Jesus using it, and it's Stephen in Acts 7, right before he's about to get stoned to death, looks up and he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But almost exclusively, it is Jesus that uses this phrase to describe himself. And the question is why? Why does Jesus like this one so much? Why does he use it almost always when he talks about himself? This is the one he goes to over and over and over again. Why? And I think there's maybe three different reasons that we can give for that. The first is that this is a phrase that I don't think came with the baggage that a word like Messiah came with. See, in the first century, every Jewish person was looking for the Messiah to come, and they all had their own understanding of what the Messiah was. Namely, it seemed to be thinking um, a 
physical, political ruler who is going to set up a physical, political kingdom who is going to reestablish Israel back to her former glory days. The days of David, the days of Solomon, where it's a um, world power once again. And that's what they're looking for. Someone who will come, put an army together, and throw off the shackles that Rome has put on us. That's what they're thinking in Messiah. Uh, In fact, John 6, I think, is where it is. These people, once they start to see that Jesus is doing some of the things that look like a Messiah, it says that they come to him and they try to, by force, make him their king. And Jesus wants nothing to do with that. That's not the kind of kingdom that he's here to establish. That's not what he's about, but he knows how quick they are to get tripped up over that word and to get caught up in that. And so I think he intentionally avoids it, even though, yes, he is the Messiah. That's not the main word he's going to use for himself. He goes to this word that has a little less baggage, son of man. Now, another reason for using this is, honestly, most naturally this word seems to stress the humanity of Jesus. Son of Man. It, it seems to, to, to display, to declare, He is human. Actually, we see this word or this phrase come up most often in the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, God refers to Ezekiel himself by this phrase 93 times. 93 times God looks to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, record what I'm about to tell you. Son of man, say this to the people. Son of man, set your eyes on this. Behold this. And over and over again, he refers to Ezekiel as that. And it's a way of stressing Ezekiel's humanity in contrast to God's divinity. That I am am God, you are man, listen to what I have to say to you. And so it would seem that Jesus may use this to stress his own humanity, which actually makes a fair amount of sense uh, in the Gospel of John, because as much as John, more than any of the Gospel writers, stresses the divinity of Jesus, he also takes pains, and you heard Kenny talk about it, to stress his humanity. I mentioned earlier that first major heresy, which was Gnosticism. And the idea behind Gnosticism was that everything spiritual, or yeah, everything spiritual is good and physical is bad. So, like, in order to be completely pure, to be completely good, you must be a spiritual thing. But as soon as you start mixing physical stuff into it, as soon as you start mixing matter into things, that stuff is corrupted and sinful things, and and it's kind of dirty and all of that. And so, Gnosticism, because it believed that, could not possibly believe that Jesus, the Son of God, would actually come in a physical body made of flesh. Now, that's gross. That's dirty, that's sinful, and God would never do that. And so Gnosticism taught that Jesus merely appeared to come in a body, Um, but that it was just kind of like an apparition, a a hologram, if you will, kind of of Jesus walking around that looked like a physical body, but it wasn't really Him. Or maybe that the Spirit of Jesus maybe took on the um, kind of possessed or assumed the body of this other person at one point, but they could not believe that the Son of God would actually become flesh. And so John takes pains to stress that. Go to 1 John, actually, 1 John 4 real quick. I want to read this to you. 1 John 4, verses 2 through 3. Can I get somebody else to read that? 
This is how we are to know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, my dear, my dear uh, children. They were good. Okay. Sweet, thank you. So that idea, every person, every spirit that confesses that Jesus came in a body, you can trust them. But those who say that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that's Antichrist, is what John says. And he really does take pains to stress that God really did take on flesh to come with us. You heard Kenny say there that he, uh, that he tabernacled. When it says the word dwelt among us, it, really mean, it literally means he tabernacled. God came and dwelled with us in the flesh, that he was human, that he took that on. And so John wants to stress that, and I think Jesus wanted to stress that, that he became like us, that he became human. But there is more to this title, Son of Man, than just the humanity factor. Go backwards now to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Can I get somebody to read that for us? says that I saw in a night vision one like a son of man. And it says that the Ancient of Days gave him this power and an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And most people think that when Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, that that is what he's calling people's attention back to. Um, that he is taking on this title, not taking on, that he is telling uh, people, I am the one that Daniel talked about. I am the Son of Man, and we see in here an, a, an almost otherworldly figure, something beyond just humanity, someone whose kingdom and dominion lasts forever, someone who is able to stand before the Ancient of Days and receive blessing and power and glory for Him. And Jesus uses that phrase to talk about Himself. In fact, there's another place, like I said, He uses it a lot. One of the biggest places where Jesus uses this is when He's on trial before the Sanhedrin. And he's standing there before the high priest and everyone else. And the high priest asks him, Are you the Son of God? Matthew 26. And Jesus' response to him is in Matthew 26, 64 is this. You say so. So he says, You say so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, when Jesus says those words... The very next words out of the high priest's mouth are blasphemy. You heard him say it, blasphemy. And so they recognized in that phrase that I'm going to be at the right hand of power, but namely the Son of Man, I myself, 
will be there at the right hand of power. They recognize in that phrase, Son of Man, something more than just humanity. That Jesus is taking on this issue of the divine, that he is claiming that attribute for himself. And so what the Son of Man seems to be is this perfect blend of divinity and humanity in one body. That this title might be the exact, like, the exact blend of what those two things are. And that's what makes Jesus' um, description in verse 51 of what's going to happen so interesting. In John 1.51, I'll read it one more time to you. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does anybody know where that phrase comes from? Lowell. Genesis 28. Go to Genesis 28 real quick. Genesis 28, I'm going to start in verse 10. I'm going to read a couple of verses and then we'll skip and then go forward. Genesis 28, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, skip down to verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven. So in Genesis 28, Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau because he knows Esau wants to kill him. He's headed to meet Laban, his uncle, and he'll eventually meet his wives there. And and he's making his way there and he pauses to sleep. And he has this vision in which there's this stairway going from heaven down to earth, and there are angels ascending and descending on it. And when Jacob wakes up, Jacob goes, whoa, this is the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven. This is the place where man meets God. Now, a little over 2,000 years ago, Jesus stands before these brand new, soon-to-be disciples and says to them, you might be amazed by the fact that I knew where you were from, Nathaniel. That's kind of where this comes out of. But he says, I tell you, you will see greater things than that. In fact, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, any good Jewish boy would know exactly what he's referencing when he says that. What Jesus is saying when he makes that statement is, this is the place where man meets God. This is the dwelling place of God. This is the gateway to heaven standing here before you. I'm the ladder. I'm the stairway. I am the house of God. And and the Gospel of John is written to declare that to us. That Jesus is the place where man meets God. If you want to know God, you first know Jesus because that's where you meet Him. 
And that's where God and humanity, humanity that was made to be with Him, that's where that first takes place again. After sin had separated them for so long, this is the place where man can come together with God again for the very first time. Gary Burge talks about what he calls the Christological nature of discipleship. And what he says when, he, when he's talking about that, what he means is, when we say that we are disciples, we mean more than, or we ought to mean, more than that we are generically trying to be good people. That we are just, you know, Christians trying to do Christian things. But to be a disciple means that we are following a specific person, the person of Jesus. And that, is we, that means that we need to know who that is. Here is the problem with Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. There are times when I get really close to thinking, maybe Mormons really are like just our kind of crazy cousins. And like they, they're, they're sort of Christians just with some really crazy ideas. The problem though is that they, they will say a lot of the same things about God and about Jesus that we do with just a number of tiny differences. And after a while, you add up tiny difference after tiny difference after tiny difference after tiny difference. And the question needs to be asked, are we talking about the same person anymore? I stand up and I start to talk to you about my wife and you go, oh yeah, I know Amy, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, about six foot tall, right? Um, I might give you, maybe you're colorblind, so maybe I'll give you the blonde hair, blue eyes thing, right? And, and you might be able to say some things about her personality that are sort of like her, but you start saying things like six foot tall and, and I start going, wait a second, like there are enough differences here that lead me to believe we, not, we might not be talking about the same person. And it is important for us not just to say, yeah, 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 I follow Jesus, but to be really clear about who this Jesus is that we follow. The Lamb of God, the Word who was with God and was God in the beginning, the light that shines in the darkness, the Son of Man upon which angels ascend and descend, the very place where man meets God. And the Gospel of John is going to allow us to get to know Him more and more clearly throughout this summer. Thanks for being here. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll continue on next week. I think we'll have one break in the summer, but we'll let you know when that week comes. So, see you next week.